Yeah, that's right. Because I feel like sometimes in the lab we're kind of separated from it and you know we're all working very hard to understand things. But at the end of the day, cells in a dish or whatever you're using you know, might be computer-based models and these kinds of things. Sometimes we can lose the focus and I think having a, a clinical input is going to be so important to actually you know, keep things grounded and keep making sure that we're on track to actually making meaningful differences for our patients because that's the goal at the end of the day. That's, that's why we do research in the first place is to actually achieve something for health in the future, you know, for the next generation, making sure they don't have to have these you know, health concerns that we've had. Hi there, welcome back to another episode of the podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? Brought to you by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and as your host, I chat with early career researchers about their academic journeys. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Guy Cameron, who is currently a postdoctoral researcher working on Aboriginal ear health at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Despite our 10-hour time difference, we did manage to find the time to sit down, and I can't wait to hear how we went from not being interested in studying at all to studying arts, and then getting a PhD in immunology and microbiology, and now pursuing both a postdoc and a medical degree. But first, I wanted to let you all know about our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where you will find more information about our guests and get to connect with us. In addition to this, we also have a YouTube channel and a blog on our website where you'll find tips and tricks for ECRs. We'd really love to hear what you think. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe. But now, let's hear Guy's story. Dr. Guy Cameron, I should say, has a diploma of IT in networking and administration and has worked in a computer store for a while before he started a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Newcastle. Now, Guy doesn't actually... Um, hasn't completed his BA, but it did give him access to the Bachelor of Biomedical Science at the same university. He continued then with a Doctor of Philosophy in Immunology and Microbiology, which he has completed just this year. So, uh, congratulations is in order. Currently, Guy is doing a joint medical program, which is a Bachelor of Medical Science and Doctor of Medicine at the College of Health, Medicine and Wellbeing at the University of Newcastle. He is a research assistant at the same time, as well as a technical assistant at a COVID-19 vaccination center and an indigenous tutor. With six publications and various prizes, awards and conference presentations, I think it's safe to say that Guy is quite successful and I hope he will share some secrets to success with us today. So welcome Guy, I'm glad that this day and age allows us to see each other so easily, despite the huge distance, time difference, and the pandemic. So how are you doing? I'm doing great. And thank you so much, Danny. That's, that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, thank you for the introduction. That's it's awesome. And it's amazing to be here with you. I'm, I'm really stoked. <laughs> <laughs> great. I'm glad. So because it's morning with me here, I actually am having a coffee instead of my regular amaretto. But what are you having? Ah, well... I was planning on bringing along a uh, boxed wine. You know, there's nothing more Aussie than a, you know, a goon bag, let's say. But <laughs> I decided to go a bit more structured and uh, I've got a little dry gin here from, uh, from a local uh, brewing company. And the reason I chose that is because it was a present from a, a dear friend of mine who actually did honours through the same lab and, you know, we really hit it off. And um, yeah, it was a present from him. So yeah, I thought it's uh, got that sentimental value. So yeah, cheers. <laughs> that sounds very good. Yeah, cheers. 
All right, so while we're sipping our drinks, um, me to wake up and you to relax, maybe. <laughs> I'm going to kick off with some short questions. And my first one is, how are your weekend mornings different from your weekday mornings? Okay. Um, so my weekdays, typically it um, you know starts around 5.30. I'll get up. First thing I do is kind of get myself ready, head on out to the gym. You know, I really don't feel like it a lot of the time, and I'm not a morning person, but it really is one of those routines that's kind of kept me structured and, and kept me involved in what I'm doing and kind of, you know, gets you ready for the day. Um, so that's kind of how my weekdays go on the weekends. It, it does depend a little bit because I have a few different um, occupations. I might be helping out at the vaccination center or whatever it is. Um, but I always love to go out for a jog or, you know, go for a walk, be out in the environment. It's, it's a yeah, great way to start your day, I think. Sounds like it, yeah. Um, it's it's getting really cold here in Germany and rainy, <laughs> so I'm not sure if I could take on such advice, but it sounds really nice to be able to uh, have a stroll in the morning. All right, um, my next question is, what do you think is the most common misperception that people have of Australia? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Uh, probably that we're all bogans, I guess, <laughs> which is somewhat true. Um, and that we live in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing, you know, nothing here, I guess. Um, cause we're so widespread, you know, we're kind of sitting behind the times as far as internet and things, because we have a, a huge area to, to kind of, um, get communications and, and things out. It's, um, kind of, I guess we lag behind a little bit. So I guess, yeah, seeing us as seen in the, you know, sitting in the dark ages still, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> So you're saying that that's not true, right? <laughs> it's not true. No, we've had some challenges to overcome as a country, but um, no, certainly we've you know we've got some of the, the you know great research facilities here and yeah, awesome things going on. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment when we get to your academic journey. But first, what have you tweeted about today? Uh, today, uh, I've kept it fairly simple. Uh, just getting involved for Movember, which is um, this movement where it's it's kind of. Um, raising money and awareness for men's health around, you know, suicide prevention projects around, um, you know, awareness for testicular health, um, research on understanding, you know, prostate cancers, these kinds of things. And I guess I'm, yeah, taking part in that and, and trying to put my face out there to try and drive a change. And, you know, so far we've been able to raise a, a few dollars. So it's been um, really exciting and I'm so proud to be taking part. Yeah, great. That sounds really good. Um, so if people want to see your uh, Movember mustache grow, <laughs> then they should follow you on Twitter with the handle at Dr. Guy Cameron, uh, where you have quite a few followers already. And you also obviously tweet about uh, about the things you do also at the university and also outside of the university. So that would be really nice. So I can recommend everyone to check out Twitter and follow you. Yeah, it's such a great space and, you know, awesome environment for sharing, you know, um, up-to-date information, particularly related to the pandemic, but not just related to that, you know, sharing the achievements of others. And it's a really great space and I'd, I'd recommend everyone get involved. Yeah. Academic Twitter has been very helpful for me as well. Yeah. All right. So when we're talking about academic Twitter, um, we see a lot of things passing by there about struggles that people have, but also celebrations of publica publications coming out and also uh, of course, finishing the PhD, PhD, hashtag PhD done, right? Has been uh, coming around a lot. Um, but before you get there, you have to start somewhere. And with you, I'd really like to figure out how it is you started your academic career. Because 
our producer Ido has uh, spoken to you earlier and he let me know like I had the idea that he didn't really want to study at the start uh, and then he started with a Bachelor of Arts and I saw on your resume that you haven't actually completed that particular bachelor. So what happened there in the start? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I guess coming out of school, I wasn't academically minded or anything. I didn't you know, expect that I'd be pursuing a career in research or, or anything really. Um, I guess I just kind of got out of school, start up a job and I, I did um, some basic IT training, which, which led into a career, which was easy. And it's something that I kind of enjoy in my leisure time, you know, being involved with computers, but it certainly wasn't, I guess, I wasn't passionate about it. And I guess the, my reason for coming to Newcastle in the first place is I fell in love with someone and, and they lived here and, you know, I packed up and came here for them and I was going to transfer to the same company because there is a, a chain of that retail place here. Uh, but they saw it as an opportunity to, you know, show me some of their work and say, you know, you've got a good head on your shoulders. You should probably use it and like, have a look at some of the programs that are up and running. And, you know, I had a look at some of her work that she was doing in uh, bio, biotechnology. Uh, and I thought, well, this is pretty cool. It was um, you know, related to biomedical sciences, but mainly focused around plants and, you know, um, genetic engineering and foods of the future, that kind of thing. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And so I guess I enrolled myself. I got in through a, a special admission, sorry, a um, tertiary special admissions test, um, okay. which is basically just like a, a strange test where it's problem solving ability. Um, but that actually got me into the Bachelor of Arts, which was kind of my foot in the door as a mature age student because I didn't have a, a good school record to kind of go off and, and be able to get into university in the first place. Um, so that kind of explains why I was in the, the Bachelor of Art to begin with. And I was kind of just searching around what it was I was actually passionate about. Like I knew I wanted to make some kind of positive change in the world, have a career that I was happy about. And, you know, going to work would be a pleasure rather than just you know, doom and gloom, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, so while I was studying at Bachelor of Arts, I got the opportunity to pick multiple different courses. So I studied some psychology, sociology, uh, a range of different areas, but I think it was a, an introductory biology course that really took my focus. I guess it was just eye-opening. I was learning about how cells work, you know, how diseases form and just, just how our human bodies are so complex. And I was just amazed at thinking, how doesn't it go wrong more often? <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that kind of drove me into biomedical sciences because as I learned more, I realized that as a species, we don't know a lot about disease, pathogenesis and why things go wrong. So I guess that kind of led me into my research career and, you know, following on from biomedical science, I did um, so well, I did honours in biomedical science as well, and I had an opportunity to, to work in a different research group. Um, so a few different projects that I was involved in were focused around asthma and COPD and different respiratory conditions um, around the fundamentals, understanding why diseases happen in the first place. And that kind of led on to my future studies where I was doing the, the PhD and beyond, I guess. Right, yeah. Um, talking about that, um, you went from a bachelor, right, of medical, of biomedical science to a doctor of philosophy. And now the system works very differently in a lot of different countries. I've been speaking to Americans, to India, to people in England, here in Germany, and also in Israel. It's different. So how does that work to move from a bachelor straight to a PhD? Yeah, so fortunately in Australia, um, if you complete your honours and you are awarded first class, 
um, you have a high likelihood of, of getting a scholarship for a PhD. You do have to apply and it is you know, um, quite difficult at times to, to get that funding. Um, I guess it is one of those kind of areas where it's, it's kind of seen as, um, you know, there's a lot of demand and, and really you've got to excel and show that you can you know, actually pull it off to, to get awarded those scholarships there in um, high demand, I guess. Um, but I was very fortunate to yeah, have a good track record there and, and get approved for that and be able to start my PhD studies um, straight after completing my honours. And can I ask in what order that happened? Like, did you know that you needed to be the first in class to get a chance on getting funding for the next step for the PhD? And that's why you worked really hard to get that? Or were you really good in it already and then later you found out you wanted to continue and you happened to get funding because you were good at it? <laughs> um, I guess when I initially enrolled in honours, I thought this is a great thing to do. I'll get some actual lab experience. And at that initial stage, I wasn't necessarily thinking I'd go on to do additional study. I kind of, at that point, thinking this is going to be great for um, getting a track record, get, building up my CV and actually being physically involved in the lab and, you know, working my in way into a, a research career in the future. Um, so I wasn't actually thinking about the PhD at all at that stage. It's kind of more just thinking, you know, it'd be great to get some physical skills, you know, working in a lab for real rather than just being in the student labs it's um quite a different experience <laughs> so right so it's the practical aspect that you were looking for yeah yeah exactly so i think that was amazing because i guess um you know having a physical project and being involved in that way really made it real like why is it that we do research in the first place you know it's to really make a difference in the world there's so much we don't know and things are very complex like you know you need so such advanced techniques in the lab to be able to begin to understand some of these things and sometimes you know you raise more questions rather than answers with your work <laughs> and that's a really cool part of science but it's yeah. one of the, the frustrating things too <laughs> you could definitely say that <laughs> i experienced the same thing even though i don't work in labs because i'm in a different field um but every answer gives you more questions right that's exactly right yeah that's the big thing about stem i think it, regardless of what area you're in <laughs> So if we go to uh, your research question and maybe a little bit of the answer as well, because you already completed your PhD, what was your PhD research about exactly? Yeah, so it was focused on understanding the different cell signaling factors that are dysregulated, I guess, in different forms of injury in the urinary tract. So I was looking at acute kidney injuries that were sterile based, so you know, inflammation driven, but not necessarily from a pathogen. And I was also looking at ascending urinary tract infections. So where a bacterium actually enters the, the bladder and then works its way up into the, the kidney and causes quite a different kind of damage there. And understanding the role of different immune cells and factors that are released by immune system and seeing the, the dynamic interplay there, I guess. So that was broadly what I was focused on studying just kind of generating knowledge so that we can later use that for future treatments. Um, so I guess some of the biggest outcomes that I had in my PhD project was based around the urinary tract infections. So a particular immune signaling molecule called interleukin-33, we found that that was actually you know, highly dysregulated in the infections. So there were large amounts of this present and we didn't really know why. So we looked at what was the effect of actually increasing that even further 
you know, trying to exaggerate things before the infection. And we actually found that that, you know, made it quite a bit worse. It actually allowed the bacteria to get into the kidneys itself. And we believe that this molecule is actually helping in some of those anti-inflammatory kind of pathways. So it was kind of um, aiding the bacteria to, to kind of get up into the kidneys because it wasn't allowing the, the bladder itself to actually rid itself of the bacteria because it undergoes a, a really important process where it kind of sheds off the superficial lining to get rid of the bacteria in the urine. That's kind of its natural response is to kind of get rid of the bacteria and flush it out. And we think that one of those immune signaling molecules may have prevented the bladder from shedding to its normal amount and allowed the bacteria to kind of ascend into the kidneys and cause you know widespread infection or pyelonephritis as it's called clinically. So we found that, and that was pretty incredible because no one has actually shown that before. But then we looked at the opposite kind of effect where we actually knocked out a different immune signaling molecule and we're actually able to prevent almost all of those urinary tract infections. So um, that was really cool. Uh, I do think it's pretty cool that you've got research results that are really new and that no one has had found yet. Um, and I bet that that's also what most of your publication articles were about. Yeah, well, actually, a lot of that work in the urinary tract, we haven't actually been able to publish on it yet. So a lot of the experiments kind of got disrupted with COVID and then we submitted some manuscripts and they were kind of just bouncing around. We've got to find the right journal for them at the moment. And like I was saying earlier, like rejection is kind of part of the, the process. Unfortunately, you can have the best experiments out there and the best models, but unfortunately, sometimes it just takes a few rounds to kind of get it into the journal where it, it fits best. Um, and everyone kind of talks about it on academic Twitter as, you know, reviewer two and everyone kind of <laughs>, laughs about the, the horrible responses that they get. And that, you know, you just got to embrace that. That is all part of the process. And even, you know, the best Nobel laureates out there, they've got several rejections. And, and I think knowing that kind of makes you feel a bit better about the process. Um, but yeah, some of that work is hopefully going to come out early next year, I'd say, as we kind of find the right fit for it. Um, so my initial publications were more about the, the sterile kidney injury and looking at similar molecules and different cells there um, and looking at, I guess, whether we could um, knock out those kind of immune signaling processes and seeing whether that actually made the injuries better or worse. And interestingly, we actually found that it was no different if we knocked it out, but several other groups showed that if you actually exaggerated those immune signaling molecules, you could actually protect against an injury and have it kind of repair the kidneys um, sooner after a sterile injury. So it kind of added to the work that other people were doing, but unfortunately it wasn't the most exciting result in the sterile context. Important to know that it didn't make any, any things, you know, make it worse or make it better, but yeah, not the most exciting story to tell, <laughs> but that was some of my initial work there in, in the first year of my PhD. Still an important building block, though, in science. And that's how it works, doesn't it? Certainly. Yeah, and it doesn't always work out perfect every time, but your results are your results. And like you're saying, we need those building blocks. And together, when you put those building blocks together, that's how we generate knowledge and understand how things work. And it really lets us have the next line of therapeutics, which are going to be available for those patients. And you've got to have all that information there. So sometimes, you know, you feel like your little block that you're putting in isn't that exciting but you know don't lose track of the whole picture that that you're adding in your phd is a, a small block but it's it's adding towards a you know a massive outcome at the end of the day exactly yeah too bad that um we still 
only give the spotlight to the people who write that paper on the top. Um, but that's also what footnotes are for. Um, and you might find yourself in one of those um, at the end of the day. So it does help, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm wondering because, like I said, I never stepped into a lab, so it's hard for me to envi envision how that went. Um, I, I suppose you are talking about um, problems with kidneys and the viruses that you mentioned in the bladder uh, with humans, right? So how do you do you research that? Did you have test humans or how does that work? <laughs> yeah, so our research group dealt mostly with um, model-based systems, so preclinical work. So it's all about the fundamentals of, of how it works. So we were utilizing um, a lot of different data sets, firstly, to understand what factors are dysregulated in yeah, human disease. So there have been a number of um, profiling kind of experiments that have been done utilizing urine, blood, and that kind of thing from patients who are experiencing these conditions. And at firstly, I was looking for correlations around what kind of immune factors are dysregulated and has anyone actually looked into those further and tried to answer, okay, what is that particular factor doing in this context? Is it is it harmful or is it preventative or is it like kind of helping the situation? It's helping repair after an injury. So I guess that was step one is kind of generating a hypothesis. So we were really interested in this kind of flavor of immune profiling called type two immunity, I guess, because it's, it's not well understood why it would be happening in this context, but it's well known to be associated with um, asthma, COPD, and also um, different infections in, in the GIT, for instance. But why in this context there was a type two flavor of immunity, we couldn't really say. And there were a couple of people looking into it. A couple of papers kind of came out in my first year of my PhD, which really helped kind of narrow in a hypothesis. So I guess I was looking at the role of that type two mediated re immune response and the cells that were producing that and trying to understand whether they were helpful or whether they were negative in those contexts. In the, the case of a sterile injury, did we want more or less of that? And in the case of a bacterial ascending infection, again, did we want more or less of that flavor of immunity? All right. I see also how this ties in back into your BA or your BSC. Uh, right, because of the um, lung diseases that you also mentioned and how that ties in with your PhD. That's interesting. Yeah. And talking about the PhD particularly, often I speak to guests who are still in the middle of it. And so am I in the middle of my PhD. But you have actually completed it. So you get to look back on the whole process and how it was. Uh, would you maybe therefore share one or two things that you struggled with during your PhD years and how you've managed to pull through or maybe have some tips on how even to prevent some of these struggles that you've dealt with? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a PhD is very challenging for a number of reasons. You know, there's a lot of time that you're expected to, to spend on your project. You know, there's limited funding and also sometimes the environments that you're in are, are really challenging for a number of reasons. I mean, you've probably heard about toxic environments and people expressing that, you know, they're not in the nicest um, environment in their PhD. And it really is about having a good supervisor and, you know, a good network of people around you to help you out. And certainly, uh, you know, the friends you make along the way are 
absolutely instrumental for your mental health. I think having good people there that you can talk to when things go wrong, because inevitably like things aren't going to work out perfect every time, you know, every experiment or, or thought that you're making, you know, it's, you know, it's not going to be right every time. And that's, that's part of the process is the, you know, the failed experiments, the rejected manuscripts that you submit. I think having a, a core network of good people and, and even in selecting your PhD in the first place, I think picking a good supervisor can make all the difference. I'd say it's probably less about the project. You know, certainly you want to have an interest in it, but you know, it's, it's a long time investment. So you want to have, you know, good people there that are going to support you throughout that journey. Yeah, definitely. I, I totally hear you. Uh, support is so important. Um, and you also mentioned something good about, um, well, good, it's not good, but <laughs> that rejection is part of doing a PhD and that could be a failure in the lab with a certain experiment or uh, with publications that get rejected or a reviewer that is not so nice about your work, which happens often, unfortunately. Um, and throughout this podcast and talking to a lot of PhD students, I've come to understand that rejection is simply and unfortunately a part of the academic world and this career path we've chosen. Um, but on the other hand, like you say, you can deal with that and it's okay. And you can learn and grow from that as long as you have a support system, mm. right? Like if you have a supervisor that, that tells you, oh yeah, of course that wasn't going to work. Uh, I gave you permission to do that experiment, but I know it's stupid or yeah, you didn't write that paper correctly at all. I wouldn't have done it that way. Then it's so much harder. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I know not only myself, but a number of people that, that I've spoken to either online or in person, you know, they've experienced quite hard times during their PhDs. And I think just recognizing that up front, if there's any candidates listening at the moment, just knowing that there are a lot of good people out there that you can you can talk to either through Twitter or, you know, just through your, your um, internal faculty. So you know, just reach out for help when you need to. I mean, I'm, I'm an advocate for mental health these days, uh, certainly because I went through a really hard experience um, during the end stages of my PhD where, you know, my supervisor moved away. I had some, a lot of challenges there trying to, you know, get through it with the pandemic and everything like that. And, wow. you know, this kind of story isn't unique. Everyone goes through very hard times, particularly at the moment, there's been so many unique challenges. And I think just don't be afraid to put your hand up for help you know, reach out. There's so many good people and, and the universities, you know, have to support you throughout this process. So, you know, don't just push through it. Your health is number one. If that takes you a little bit longer to complete, that doesn't matter. Just look after yourself. That's great advice. Yeah. You're not in this alone, even though it may seem like that, especially when you're isolated. Um, but there is help out there. Um, a good start might be to look up academic Twitter and get some positive vibes from other people who are in the same situation, uh, people are asking each other for help there all the time. So you might be able to even scroll through and find solutions to your problems simply because others have gone through the same thing. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's just a nice thing to do. Um... Right. And it's, it's kind of interesting that the academic Twitter community out there online is so supportive. It's such a nice environment to be in and to read other people's tweets um, even if some bad things happens, everyone's trying to, you know, help the other one out. Um, and as a political scientist, I'm also on Twitter on like anything that has to do with political debate. <laughs> that's not a nice environment to be in at all. Like that's where all the trolls are and that's where no one 
everyone is kind of afraid of tweeting anything about their personal opinion because they don't want to get attacked. Um, so it's interesting that in academia, it's actually very different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly sometimes when I share some COVID-19 related information, you know, you do get those trolls or just people trying to, you know, um, you know send you inflammatory kind of tweets. But on a whole, I think my, my experience has been very positive anyway. When I've I've in detail kind of shared the the difficulties that I had throughout my journey and spoke about that. And there were so many people who reached out and said that they were in, you know, either tough spaces or just, you know, thankful for me for sharing my story and that, you know, made them feel like they had a bit of kinship there. And, you know, some people have been through some hard times in their PhDs as well. And I think it's important that we all, you know, start speaking about this and, and make it more normalized that, you know, it's okay if you're going through a hard time, but, you know, we need to be mindful that that is a part of it, but we, you know, we want to change things for the next generation. We want to make it better. And if we can raise these issues that hopefully we can start to address them. I mean, just recently there was um, a very well-known scientist in Australia who like tweeted about his experiences in his research lab 20 years ago. And it was very similar to mine, you know, supervisor took off and made it a really horrible experience for him trying to finish. And, you know, he was talking about how that still upsets him today. And I think just having that kind of kinship there, it's upsetting that these kind of things are still happening today. That was you know, yeah. his experience from 20 years ago. But, you know, it's important that we all speak about this and you know, really make sure that we're looking after our candidates and you know, not trying to sweep these issues under the rug. It's something we need to address. That's right. Yeah. And of, of course, that's the same when you um, physically, actually, in real life, <laughs> reach out to people from your university. So I could definitely uh, see that. Thanks for that recommendation. No, that's all right. Uh, I'm sorry that you had to go through uh, some of those struggles. Um, but despite all of that, you now are a doctor and you managed to publish and present your work at conferences. Um, and now you're, you have a postdoc position and you got that right after the PhD, right? So what are you working on? at the moment? So I've really only just started up, I guess, with um, the Aboriginal Ear Health Group. And it's it's a new, um, I guess, experience for me because we're just kind of setting up the lab at the moment. So there wasn't a, a previous um, lab set up there ready to go, but we're essentially looking at improving ear health. Um, we're mainly focused on our Aboriginal population because you know, in Australia here, our Indigenous people experience, you know, um, quite severe ear disease, particularly in childhood. So that's something we, we really want to intervene with. And there's a number of projects that are up and running that I've been kind of involved in this year that haven't been so much lab-based, but we're looking at performing some clinical audits to you know, get, a pitch, get a better picture of across our health district. You know, what are the common presentations? Do they happen at emergencies, emergency areas because they just can't get access to GPs? Are our GPs you know, diagnosing it well enough and, you know, understanding the problems. We've got a range of different projects looking at um, creating video um, kind of training resources for GPs and, and surveys going out there to understand, you know, whether they feel confident in looking in someone's ear and making a diagnosis and whether that particular training resource has actually helped them out or not. And there's a, yeah, a couple of other projects looking at the role of Aboriginal health practitioners also in the GP kind of setting, not only in the Aboriginal medical centres. And I guess, um, yeah, I'm still kind of setting up the lab and looking at, I guess, the role of different bacterial specimens. So 
we've got a range of different um, isolates that we want to start profiling, looking at looking at these bugs and trying to understand, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg. So is this particular bug that we're seeing in the year, is that what's caused the, the actual infection in the first place or is it uh, a compensatory kind of interplay with another pathogen that's there? So trying to understand the role between commensal and pathogenic bacteria because it's a really early stages for this project, but I'm, I'm super excited to be getting involved. Yeah, sounds cool. Um, I wanted to follow up on that. You said that you're looking at these ear infections, uh, especially with uh, the Aboriginal community. Is that because it happens more with them or um, you're only interested in this particular group and, and their medical uh, health? Yeah, so I guess that's our passion because it does disproportionately affect our people. So that's number one, that, you know, children seem to present with ear-related disease, you know, about twice the rate if they're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So it is significant burden on our communities, and particularly those who maybe don't have access to, you know, a, a good GP kind of setting or, you know, uh, feeling comfortable in that environment because they're unfortunately in our in our health system, things have improved a lot, but we've got a long way to go as far as unconscious biases. And, you know, unfortunately, racism is still one of those things that we're not completely um, addressing as a community yet. But, you know, things are certainly improving and it's it's just got a little way to go. Right. Are there more projects like this that focus on uh, the Aboriginal community specifically at your university or in Australia? Or do you feel like you might be one of the only ones out there? Oh, there are certainly other projects. Um, so there are a number of projects that were that I've um, recently learned about that were performing in utero scans of, of newborns and just saying, oh, sorry, in, in utero, so they, they're not yet born. Um, so looking at whether we can use those scans to report on, you know, the potential health outcomes of the, the offspring, you know, trying to use new technologies to get a a better understanding of how they're developing and where they're meeting milestones to try and um, impact on the the preterm birth kind of story because unfortunately that is another area where it, it significantly affects you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But there are a range of different projects um, that are being performed across the university. There are some in respiratory health and you know I think um, there's a range of different people involved in that across our university and. They're actually taking that out to the communities um, more like inland across um, different areas of New South Wales. And, and that's pretty exciting that they're actually, you know, getting the community involved. It's not just expecting everyone to travel out to the, the bigger regions because sometimes that's just not an option because in Australia we are quite widespread. Right. <laughs> At times it does work that way in Australia. Yeah, that's right. All right. And on your resume, I also noticed that you wrote that you're an Indigenous tutor. Uh, what do you mean by that? I haven't seen that on a resume yet. And what do you do in that position? Yeah, so it's a position that um, runs in consultation with the university itself. So it's kind of giving back to the community through um, an area called the Wallatooka Institute. So they're all about um, making sure that Indigenous people get equal opportunity and are you know, having the opportunities to succeed no matter of their background. So... Um, it's a service that we offer that we can basically have some one-on-one -on -one tutoring to make sure that, you know, they're, they're having the best chance to succeed. So I work one-on-one -on -one with students in areas of, um, you know, 
trying to get into medicine or they might be pursuing a science career and just want to talk a bit more about it or, you know, just some assistance with, um, you know, meeting the demands of, of their project or sometimes just, you know, being there as someone to talk to, just a, a mentor who can say, you know, it wasn't so long ago that I was in that place and it's, it's okay. Like I know it's stressful at the moment, but we've got this. And <laughs> just, just having that voice I think is, is so helpful sometimes because some people, you know, like myself, I didn't expect to get into this kind of career. And unless someone's told you that you, you can do this, sometimes you just don't know. You don't really back yourself sometimes. And I think having that positive reinforcement is so helpful. Right. So back again to the support system. So you're a part of that for others. That's really great. I like that. Yeah, exactly. It's something that I'm you know particularly passionate about. I think out of all of my careers that I've had, it's it's the one where I've, I've seen the, the biggest benefit and I think it's just so amazing that our university actually you know, supports these things and allows the Walatuka Institute to, you know, have these different projects because they they have an amazing benefit on people, and even in the, the HDR world. So people who are doing PhDs, there's a support network there where you can get involved and meet up and just kind of have an opportunity to talk it through with other students who who come from you know similar backgrounds and having that safe place to just be able to you know talk about your projects in a a good environment where you can get that feedback if you need from people who are not necessarily working in the same space but can really you know give you their feedback on a whole whether things make sense from an outsider point of view and it's it's so brilliant some of the the things that um, are going on there at the university and I'm so proud to be involved great yeah keep on doing the good work <laughs> I hope everything will be open again soon and then you'll be able to meet everyone in person again as well yeah that's right zoom meetings are not <laughs> not ideal <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it works if, if there's no other option, but I think a lot of people are dying to have some actual social contact again. <laughs> oh, that's right. All right, so I noticed that you're doing a lot of activism. I obviously a tutor and a mentor to a lot of people. Um, you're growing a mustache for Movember to raise awareness and also some money. Um, and you're also uh, part of a vaccination center. I'm not sure exactly what your role there is. Is. Yeah, so at the vaccination center, I kind of just do a bit of everything. I guess it's a, a good way to really give back to our community and, and just be the face. So sometimes I'll I'll be at the door greeting people. Sometimes I'll be coordinating the vaccines between the, the pharmacy drawer up and the, the nurses out there actually giving them. So being the in-between in person to kind of coordinate the numbers and make sure we don't have too much out because it's got a, you know, um, a small amount of time where it can be administered without kind of being unstable. So, yeah, I do a range of different jobs there. All right. Uh, how has that been to work in a vaccination center? Because um, I know that in Israel, uh, we had vaccines pretty fast and a lot of people were able to get it very early on. Um, so it also seemed like a lot of people did want to get it. But now that I'm in Germany, in a state where there's a lot uh, of numbers of people who are sick but did not the Jews actually not to get the vaccine. Um, there seems to be a lot of issues, um, even at vaccination centers. So have you experienced anything like that? Well, fortunately, I think in New South Wales, things have been really smooth. So we've got, you know, quite large numbers. I think we're up to 91% double dose now and 94% have single dose. But I think that in the early stages, um, things were really slow for us and, there's a number of reasons why that happened, but again, if there's not that drive, because we didn't get hit as hard as some other countries. And I think that 
made people be a bit more relaxed with it, thinking that it's not such a big deal. And then it started coming over here in you know big numbers. It started to kind of get out of control, particularly in Victoria. And I think that kind of spurred people to to come in and get the vaccine. So yes, there is the, occasionally someone who's um, spouting about a bunch of nonsense, but fortunately, you know, having that immunology kind of background, I've been able to you know, have a good conversation with people and just say, here is the facts. So I think it's been very useful that kind of have me there on the ground. So sometimes I'll be out the front having a chat with someone who's very anti-vax and I can just give them the information and just have a conversation in a, a non-judgmental way. And I think sometimes that's helpful. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's what we need, a normal conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of people yelling at each other or, yeah, worse. Mm-hmm. All right. And do you think that in Australia everyone has access to the vaccine? I mean, we talked about um, uh, how... Um, not everyone lives in centers um, and it's sometimes hard to reach other communities in Australia. Do you think that has been an issue? It has been somewhat, yeah. So there are some of our remote areas of Australia where you know, getting the supply there has been a bit concerning. And certainly um, if I come back to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations, you know, there's a particular risk. So at some point, you know, it did get into some of our communities. Um, there's an area called Walgett. Um, an area in New South Wales anyway, a small community. But, yeah, there were a few cases kind of cropping up there and there's only one supermarket. So, you know, if a case comes into the supermarket, they have to, you know, shut it down, have deep clean, that kind of thing, and everyone's kind of isolating and that really affected the community. So I think everyone getting involved and uh, there are a number of um, nurses who went up from our university and our health service to actually go out to the community and make sure that, you know, everyone had equitable access to the vaccine. And I think those kind of programs have been so instrumental for for boosting up the numbers, particularly in the remote areas of Australia. I think that's been, yeah, so amazing. But certainly there hasn't been the access that that we've had in some of the bigger places, but I think that has changed now a bit. And for the most part, I think there is good access now, but it's taken a long time for it to happen. Right. Well, we hope that everything is going to get better soon. Now that everyone did have access and maybe already got the vaccine. All right. I wanted to get back uh, to your research again, um, because I noticed that you're doing a joint program, right? You explained to me about your uh, research that you're setting up about ear infections. Um, so what's the other part of the joint program? Oh, so the, the joint medical program is kind of a, a joint system between multiple universities. So it's through you know, the University of Newcastle, University of Armidale, and different areas um but it's a it's also a joint program where you do um, three years as a bachelor of medical science and also the two years of a a doctor of science Um, so it's all kind of built in one kind of program at the end of that you actually graduate with not only the bachelor's degree but also the the doctorate that sounds cool so how did you get into that position right after the phd so i was fortunate enough to enroll in it um, last year at the end Um, So there are a number of different pathways that people can get into medicine. And fortunately, through the Wallatooka Institute, they run a program called Miroma Bundilla. So that's um, a week-long kind of training course so you can get into medicine, but you have to show that you can actually um, do all the things that would be required of a medicine student. So we're having these um, problem-based learning tutorials, which we have throughout medicine. And it's all built around a, a clinical case study. So we'll be presented with a patient, 
and each day you learn a little bit more about the patient. You might get some lab results. You might um, pick up some new information about them. And then you're kind of learning the background, you know, the anatomy, the, the physiology, understanding how the disease processes work along that week as well. So you can kind of, at the end of the week, you can put it all together and you can say, okay, this is the likely diagnosis. This is you know, what's going on. And this is how we would manage that patient to, to make sure that they get the best health you know, outcomes in the future. So I guess it was um, kind of a training program built around what's required of a med student. But we also had the opportunity to visit the Aboriginal medical services and actually you know, talk one-on-one with um, other uh, medical students who are you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and they can kind of let us know their experiences and be mentors to us throughout the process and really, you know, explain, you know, how how proud they are to be involved here and, you know, how amazing it is to, to be enrolled in medicine and, you know, kind of the tips and tricks to help us out throughout our degree. That sounds like a, another great support program. <laughs> mm. And I'm glad you made it through that uh, week and got into the program. But I wanted to ask... Um, Having already done a PhD and research and now being interested in continuing and getting a postdoc position, why would you go into more medical studies again instead of only research? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I've, I've been asked that a number of times. <laughs> People have said, okay. haven't you had enough torture yet? <laughs> but as I kind of look back on it, I would... I'd love to keep continuing in research and that's kind of something I want to keep up while I'm continuing through this postdoc and I want to, you know, remain involved in research, but I guess I feel like I could achieve a lot more as a clinician researcher. So not stuck in one world or the other, but being able to, you know, see a patient say there's these subset of people that we just don't have effective treatments for. What can we do about it? And be able to take that to a research group, you know, a multidisciplinary team and say, this is the characterization. We've got no effective treatments for these people. We need to better understand what's going on and be able to, you know, really take things from bench to bedside. So I guess that's my goal in the future. And to really be able to achieve that, I need to, you know, be a, a medical doctor as well as a doctor of research. So I can kind of put those together and actually have some you know, outcomes for patients because, you know, research is great, but sometimes I feel like we need more push to be able to, you know, get this um, this work into the clinic and, you know, have it clinically meaningful. I guess if you're, you're stuck in the lab, you're kind of isolated from, you know, seeing the actual patients and, and you know, making sure that it's clinically relevant, I think is going to be you know, so important for translation of some of these discoveries. Right. So it's just really important to combine everything, also the real world with the theoretical one from academia. Yeah. Um, also to, to actually take that information and that knowledge that we have from that world into the real world. I totally get that. Yeah, that's right. Because I feel like sometimes in the lab we're kind of separated from it and you know, we're all working very hard to understand things. But at the end of the day, cells in a dish or whatever you're using you know, might be computer-based models and these kinds of things. Sometimes we can lose the focus and I think having a, a clinical input is going to be so important to actually you know, keep things grounded and keep making sure that we're on track to actually making meaningful differences for our patients. Because that's the goal at the end of the day. That's that's why we do research in the first place is to actually achieve something for health in the future, you know, for the next generation, making sure they don't have to have these, you know, health concerns that we've had. Cool. All right. So you've started this program, which is uh, a little bit of everything, a bit of both worlds. 
um, while already thinking, at least that's what I hear when I hear you talking, uh, about the future and what's going to be next. And that's one of the most important questions of this podcast. That is, what are you going to do with that? Are you thinking of continuing academia? Uh, do you want to continue as an MD? Where would you like to work? What's next? Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's so much that I want to do, I guess. <laughs> I figure that the only problem is time. I guess I can't do it all, but I would really love to remain in academia. I want to be able to give back to the next generation. So I'd love to be able to do some lecturing, you know, be involved in, in both the medical research um, side in education, as well as, you know, doctors in training. I'd love to keep up that side of it, but I'm also very interested in, I guess, leading a multidisciplinary team so that we can have some effective outcomes for our patients. So, you know, we're going to need biomedical scientists, we're going to need chemists, you know, engineers potentially depending on the the types of interventions that we're thinking of in the future so i really want to be in a position where i can bring together all of these people with the unique skills and you know put them all together on a, on a single um, focus to, be able to make a difference for our patients so i guess that's where i'm aiming in the future i want to you know, remain in academia i want to remain in research and also be a clinician at the hospital so I guess I kind of have big goals to, to be involved in everything and whether that's achievable or not, I can't say. But, you know, as far as in medicine, I think there are so many specialities that we've already been spoken to about. And, you know, everyone who comes in, in their specialty, they say it's the best thing ever and they're so passionate about it. And it's, it's incredible some of the people that you meet throughout this journey. And I guess I can't say exactly which specialty I'll end up in. Like, they're all so amazing, but... I think paediatrics is is an area where I'd absolutely love to be in, you know, being able to help children at the end of the day, if you can intervene and stop them from you know, having a harder life, I think that's just absolutely amazing. Although it would be a, a scary place to work as well because, you know, kids certainly, you know, things can go downhill quickly and, and making sure that you, you know, you're competent to be in that environment and certainly you'd have to have, you know, quite good training and, and making sure that you're, you know, doing the best for your patients as well as their families. So, so I think right. it's it's going to be a really rewarding area to be in. But also, yeah, it's kind of scary. <laughs> I Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I'm not sure if it will be something for me, but you almost finished your first year, I understand, right? Yeah, yeah, we just finished our exams. So 20% of the way <laughs> finished. <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. So you have more time to also figure out um, if it is something that you're comfortable working in and with. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I was wondering if there is an existing position that you know of, or if there is a job title that does combine all of the things you've just mentioned you want to work in, or would that be like a set of part-time jobs together? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. There are a number of people who work as clinician researchers, and we have a few of those at our university that I've had the opportunity to speak to, and they're absolutely incredible people. And I guess I kind of want to follow in their footsteps. But as far as the exact job that I'm describing, that probably doesn't exist yet. But I have been in discussion with a number of professors who have basically said, you know, that, that sounds amazing. You know, you've got great drive for the future and we want to support you throughout that process. And you know, we think we want to yeah, support you in that career because that all sounds amazing. So I guess whether or not it's going to happen, it's still early days and I, I can't say it, but I'll figure I'll, I'll aim as high as I can and we'll see where we end up. <laughs> All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck and I can't wait to hear what it's turned out to be. <laughs> but it's going to take more time, of course. 
uh, and we should take our time, right, uh, to be the student and to see what's good for us, what works, and sometimes also what doesn't. That's exactly right. Enjoy the journey. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, I could ask you another million questions. Uh, I really had a nice conversation with you, but I'm afraid that I will have to wrap up now. So I have a few short questions. They're not actually short, but I like to have a short answer if that's possible. Uh, the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution so far to your field? My most important contribution, I would say, you know, I've published, I've done talks, I've done different things, but the most impactful thing I think is actually, you know, being with students, helping them out and getting, because they're going to be the next generation of scientists and medical professionals. So I think helping them out one-on-one -on -one has been my biggest contribution. So that connects to the tutoring we talked about earlier. Yeah, exactly. Is that something you're interested in also continuing doing? Absolutely. I would love that because, you know, these people are going to be the future and the, you know, the bright faces that I've seen and the, the amazing people that, you know, way more inspirational than myself. And if I can do a little bit to help them out, you know, I can just see they're going to have amazing careers and, and really make some changes in the world. So if I can inspire a few of those people, then brilliant. Great contribution. All right. And then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Ooh, good question. Um, gosh, there are a number of you know, such amazing people in in Australia, I guess, um, gosh, I guess Peter Doherty has got to be, you know, one of the amazing people out there. I just think throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, he has been, you know, advocating for, you know, correct information getting out there and, you know, he's absolutely, absolute legend. He's got a whole, you know, research lab based on his name. He's got a, yeah, a Nobel and he's, you know, about 80 years old now and he's still actively fighting this misinformation that's out there and doing amazing things. So, I think that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, sounds like we could use some more people like that in the world. <laughs> All right. And then my last question is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? Oh, good question. Um, I always grew up with video games and that's something that I try and get into a little bit <laughs> if I have the time. But occasionally if I'll have, yeah, yeah 10 minutes to just relax, I'd love to just yeah, put my feet up and put on a, a silly video game and just kind of unwind. And that's, I think that's a, a lovely way to spend my evening. <laughs> All right, so video gaming. I hope it's not anything to do with the imposter, which always connects to the imposter syndrome that we talk about sometimes. <laughs> no, I have enough imposter syndrome going on, so <laughs> I try and avoid that. <laughs> All right, good. Well, thank you for joining us today, Guy. Uh, you've had a very interesting academic journey so far and there's still time left so we'll see what that brings you um, and I also think I learned quite a bit from it so thanks for that and I also want to thank our audience again for tuning in don't forget to connect with us on social media on YouTube and our website with the name what to do with that with the two spelled as the number two and also don't forget to have a look at Guy's Twitter account to see his Movember beard grow his handle is at Dr. Guy Cameron. Uh, thank you so much, Danny, for getting me involved. This has just been incredible. And, you know, certainly I'd, I'd recommend anyone to, you know, get involved and tell your PhD story. And just, you know, it's, it's so amazing to have this network here. So I'm, I'm really thankful to be on and, and thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Yeah, I was glad to speak to you and that we found the time despite the time difference. Um, and you had a good story. I really enjoyed it today. Thanks. <laughs>